You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 18. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, good morning. We're going to look again uh, today at um, Calvin's treatment of predestination, Lesson 17. Spending two classes on this for a number of reasons. One is it is important. Another is that people often misunderstand exactly what Calvin is teaching when he discusses um, election and reprobation in his theology. And uh, so I think we need to uh, carefully go through it and spend a a little more time uh, with it. Uh, We've already looked at uh, some important uh, matters. Uh, One, the location of the doctrine in the Institutes. I don't think I can really stress that enough because the the location uh, is important to Calvin. I was just um, listening to um, a tape lecture given in Scotland over the last few days on Calvin's Institutes, and the lecturer um, said that Calvin's location doesn't really matter. But uh, I think that's quite uh, wrong because Calvin... Uh, tells us that he is very concerned about uh, where doctrines appear in the Institutes and that he was not uh, satisfied until 1559 with the order or arrangement uh, of the uh, Institutes. So I believe that um, uh, Calvin very consciously and carefully positions the doctrine of predestination in Book 3 where it uh, can express uh, the teaching that he would like for it uh, to express, and that is to answer the question, where does my faith come from? So we looked at the location, we looked at the function, and um, looked at the description, beginning with definitions. We looked at... uh, Calvin's definition of election. God is the author. Election is eternal. And even though there is a general election that extends to the people of Israel, there is also a specific individual election that uh, relates to every person, election and reprobation. And reprobation, uh, Calvin says, God is the author of that decree, and uh, that also is eternal, and that also extends to individuals. So that's where we are. We'll pick it up there at uh, point B, uh, the cause and ground of election and reprobation. And uh, as we begin to think about this again, let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer, praying uh, the same prayer that I used at the beginning of the last lecture. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as Thou hast been pleased to adopt us once for all 
as thy people for this end, that we may be engrafted, as it were, into the body of thy Son, and so be made conformable to our head, O grant, that through our whole life we may strive to seal in our hearts the faith of our election, that we may be the more stimulated to render thee true obedience, and that thy glory may also be made known through us. And those others also whom thou hast chosen together with us, may we labor to bring with us, that we may with one accord celebrate thee as the author of our salvation. And so ascribe to thee the glory of thy goodness, and having cast away and renounced all confidence in our own virtue, we may be led to Christ only as the fountain of thy election, in whom also is set before us the certainty of our salvation through thy gospel, until we shall at length be gathered with him into that eternal glory which he has procured for us by his own blood. Amen. It's pretty remarkable that Calvin summarizes just about everything he has to say about election in that prayer. And uh, Calvin's prayers are pretty weighty prayers theologically, but uh, they're also prayers of uh, great devotion uh, to God. Well, cause and ground, we've, we've seen what election is, the definition. We've seen the definition of reprobation. Uh, what is the cause and the ground of election first, and then we'll come to reprobation. Calvin makes it clear that God's decree doesn't rest on good works or good works. He says that some people believe that predestination is equivalent to foreknowledge in the definition of foreknowledge simply being that God sees beforehand what is going to take place. And so God sees that uh, people will be good, some will, and he elects them on the ground of their good works. But Calvin, of course, rejects that. God's decree is made before the foundation of the world. And uh, consequently, uh, before the existence of people uh, who could, uh, if they could, produce good works that he could foresee. Uh, the way uh, Calvin states this is in a question in 322.2, what basis for distinction is there among those who did not yet exist? So, God chooses, but he doesn't choose on the basis of foreseeing good works because there is nothing to see. Because these individuals don't yet exist. So, God's election doesn't rest on good works because there aren't any, nor does it rest on foreseeing good works because there were really no good works to be foreseen. The grace of God does not find, but makes persons fit to be chosen. 322.8. So it's not good works. God doesn't see any. It's not foreseeing good works because there won't be any in sinful individuals. 
So we come down, Calvin says, to what the Bible teaches about election, and that is that it is based, its cause and ground is God's good pleasure. He says that over and over again. He compacted with himself. Or the intrinsic cause of this is in himself, 322.7. And phrase after phrase, you could probably uh, find a hundred phrases like this in these chapters that we have read that tell us that uh, the single cause and ground of God's election is found in himself, in his own good pleasure, his own will, his own decision. Okay, let's take it over to reprobation. What is the cause and ground of reprobation? God's decree doesn't rest on sinful works. Now, we'll see that sinful works is the cause of condemnation, but not the cause of reprobation. It doesn't rest on sinful works. It doesn't rest on foreseen sinful works of individuals. And uh, Calvin here illustrates this with the passage in Romans 9 where uh, Paul is discussing Jacob and, and Esau and uh, the passage from the scripture just as it is written in the Old Testament, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And uh, Calvin asks, uh, as Paul does, why, why is that? It would, it would be uh, easy, uh, you would think, uh, to defend God's righteousness by saying that God recompenses Esau according to his works. Esau was going to be a person of um, unrighteousness and disobedience. And so the reason you might think that God would hate Esau was because Esau hated God. But uh, as Paul points out, and as Calvin points out, that's, that's not the solution that is given. But um, Paul says that the reprobate are raised up in order that the glory of God may be thereby displayed. Consequently, reprobation doesn't uh, rest in sinful works or foreseen sinful works. These are not the cause and ground, but uh, the ultimate cause is that the glory of God might uh, be thereby displayed. 3.22.11, Calvin puts it this way, When it is said that God hardens or shows mercy to whom he wills, men are warned by this to seek no cause outside his will. So God hardens, reprobation, God shows mercy, election, we are warned to seek no cause uh, outside his will. But there's something here that we need to notice because it's important. And it doesn't, um, 
it doesn't parallel precisely uh, what we have on the side of election. And that is there's both an ultimate cause and a proximate cause for reprobation. There's an ultimate cause for election, and there's no proximate cause. The ultimate cause is God's good pleasure. But when we think about um, reprobation, we have to think about an ultimate cause, which is God's good pleasure, but uh, also a proximate cause. Calvin calls it an evident cause, an evident cause, uh, which is um, man's sin. Man's sin, as I said, is not the cause of reprobation as such. We can see that as God's good pleasure, although we remember that it, Calvin says, is an awesome decree and one that um, is beyond our grasp. But uh, we should remember that the proximate cause, which is man's sin, caused not of reprobation as such, but of condemnation. God's good pleasure is the cause and ground of reprobation. Man's sin is the cause and ground of condemnation. Which means that it is in man's sin uh, that um, we find guilt and blame and condemnation. God condemns people because of their sin. 3.23.8, Calvin says, Man falls according as God's providence ordains. That would be the ultimate cause, God's good pleasure. But he falls by his own fault. And that is the proximate cause is sin. You see a kind of uh, disjunction here. When we think of election, it's God's good pleasure. And uh, that's all we can say. We can't say that our righteousness or our good works or a kind of proximate cause, they're not. But when we come to reprobation, the reprobate or condemn because of their own sin and because of their own rebellion against God. Accordingly, Calvin says, this is still in 3.23.8, accordingly we should contemplate the evident cause of condemnation in the corrupt nature of humanity, which is closer to us rather than seek a hidden and utterly comprehensible cause in God's predestination. I think that's a very important sentence, so let me read it again. 3.23.8 We should contemplate the evident cause of condemnation in the corrupt nature of humanity, which is closer to us, rather than seek a hidden and utterly incomprehensible cause in God's predestination. Let me... Um,
emphasize that further by using a chart. As we think about salvation, the salvation of the saved, uh, we can we can put ourselves here. We're looking at salvation of ourselves or other people. What we see is God's predestination, God's grace. It's the same thing. If you if you believe in grace, Orfield said, if you really believe in grace, you'll believe in predestination. So what we see as we think about salvation is simply God's grace expressed to us in Christ. But when we come to view the condemnation of the lost, we see human sinfulness. And we also see God's predestination. But um, this is how Calvin puts it in that same sentence, 323.8. We should contemplate the evident cause of condemnation in the corrupt nature of humanity, in human sinfulness, which is closer to us, it's closer to us, than seek a hidden and utterly incomprehensible cause in God's predestination. It's not that Calvin is saying this utterly hidden and incomprehensible cause does not exist. It is the ultimate cause. But the evident cause, the cause that is closer to us, is human sinfulness. So, we can say people go to heaven because of God's predestination. We can say people go to hell because of their sin. And we see even beyond that, we see that utterly hidden an incomprehensible cause, at least we know it's there, although Calvin says we have the evident cause uh, which is closer to us, and that really is sufficient. So the Christian, as a Christian, we look to God's election, not to anything in ourselves. But when we think of the condemnation of the lost, uh, we look to their sins rather than to God's decree. I think that's I think that is being true to Calvin to put it that way. At the same time, there is the decree of reprobation, but it's inaccessible. What is accessible to us is the fact that people go to hell because of their sin, because of their rejection of God and his truth. Questions on that or comments on that? Yes. Um, would we say that Calvin would, I mean, he doesn't say it outright, but that Calvin would believe that God ordained the fall? Yes, he does believe that God ordained the fall. And um, he does say it outright in a number of places. But uh, he also says that um, human beings are guilty of the fall, and uh, not only Adam and Eve, but all their descendants are guilty in joining with them in their rebellion against God. So it's not that he denies that ultimate uh, decree 
but he, in a sense, says, secret things belong to the Lord. What is, is clear to us is that people sin because of their rebellion against God. It's their own fault, and uh, that is the cause of their condemnation. At the same time, insisting that the ultimate cause is God's decree of reprobation. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later because we want to see how reprobation relates to election further. But uh, let's, before we do that, uh, let's uh, go on with the uh, definition here. The means of election. or of salvation and the means of of reprobation. Before I I do that, let me just uh, stress again a bit what I have just said. There's some more notes here that I had not uh, seen at first, but um, say it this way. God stands in a direct relation to the elect. God adopts some to hope of life. So God stands in a direct relation to the elect. God adopts some to hope of life. That's 3.21.5. And God stands in a direct relation uh, to the reprobate. 3.21.5 goes on to say, and sentences others to eternal death. 3.21.5. 21.5. God adopts some to hope of life and sentences others to eternal death. So God stands in a direct relation to both the elect and the reprobate. But God also stands in an indirect and accidental relation to the reprobate. God also stands in an indirect and accidental relation to the reprobate. Now, this is not from the Institutes, but from his commentary on John 3.17. When Christ says that he has come for judgment, when he is called a stone of stumbling, when he is said to be set for the falling of many, it may be regarded as accidental, or so to say, foreign, for those who reject the grace offered in him deserve to find him the judge and avenger. So there's both that direct relation in which God sentences some to eternal death and that indirect, Calvin says, accidental relation in which his coming, his will is for some Judgment, or so to say, accidental or foreign, for those who reject the grace offered in him deserve to find him the judge and avenger. So, those two things are, I think, always held together uh, in Calvin. He's content to uh, let these two concepts stand uh, side by side, or uh, really one behind the other. We find it on the chart here. Both are true, and uh, Calvin doesn't um, attempt to 
find some sort of logical explanation as to how both can be true. Right, the means, not the means of election as such, but the means by which God saves the elect. That's what I mean by the word here in the outline. And uh, Calvin uh, makes it clear to us uh, in these chapters that we have read that the elect are elect from all eternity. But at a certain point in life, those elect people are called and justified. So there are elect people who are not yet saved people. Julian? In relation to that, Scripture tells us that if one or more parents of a child is saved, that the, the child will be with God also. And I guess a question in my mind is that if a child is born and both parents at that point in time are not saved, the child dies, and then one or more of them are chosen and later in life are redeemed, what would the thought be in relation to the child? Mm. Julian's asked a tough question about a um, child of one or more saved parents. It's not, it's not clear to me, and I don't think you would find this in Calvin, that that scripture says, or Calvin says, that because one parent is saved, the child is saved. I mean, one parent is... is yeah, I'm not by Calvin. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I think neither scripture nor Calvin says that. That child is brought into uh, a relationship to the church, sanctification, um, blessed in a covenant relationship with the church, but uh, as I understand scripture, it doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, promise or guarantee uh, salvation of that child. We'll look uh, a little more at that uh, from Calvin's point of view when we come to uh, book four and the sacraments and infant baptism to see uh, exactly how infant baptism functions uh, in Calvin's theology. So God, in time, calls and justifies the elect. The means would be the offering of the gospel. The elect, at some point, hear the gospel. God calls them. There's the external call and the internal call and regenerates them through justification by faith, which he gives to them. The shutting off of the reprobate Calvin says comes uh, as the reprobate are shut off from knowledge of his name or from sanctification of his spirit so we would say the reprobate even though they may externally hear the gospel um, God's Spirit is not with them, and uh, they do not understand and do not respond. And then the goal, the goal of election is twofold. The glory of God is the ultimate goal, 
And our sanctification is the proximate goal. Uh, stressing uh, the opening verses of Ephesians 1 and other similar passages, uh, Calvin says, Paul teaches that we have been chosen to this end that we may lead a holy and blameless life. So, it's not simply that the goal is to, to elect some people, but the goal is to elect those people to holiness and to righteousness. So, we can see two goals in mind, the glory of God and the sanctification of the elect. In reprobation, uh, we see one goal, and that is the glory of God. Calvin puts it this way, when mention is made of the glory of God, let us think also of his righteousness, his justice, his righteousness, the aspect of uh, God's character, which is particularly set forth in reprobation is the righteousness and justice of God in punishing sin. Election, in election, God graciously chooses some that deserve to be punished. In reprobation, God righteously reprobates in some others who deserve to be reprobated. Of course, we all deserve reprobation. We all deserve condemnation. But out of the out of the mass of humanity, to use Augustine's expression, God chooses to save some. Calvin uh, gives us uh, this chapter on objections to Predestination, that's chapter 23. I mean, by this time, reading chapter 21, chapter 22, there are objections. Uh, and probably uh, we had at least some questions, some difficulties with all of this. And uh, Calvin uh, goes through uh, these five objections. I'm just going to read these through. Uh, you can look at the chapter further. Um, to get Calvin's detailed answers to these objections. Uh, one is it makes God a tyrant. Calvin, of course, rejects that and speaks of uh, the depth of um, the riches of the knowledge of God. Another is it takes guilt and responsibility away from us. Calvin says, we fall according as God's providence ordains, but fall, man falls according as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. Another objection is it teaches that God shows partiality toward persons. The fact that God therefore chooses one man but rejects another arises not out of regard to the man, but solely from his mercy. Another is it destroys all zeal for an upright life. Calvin says Paul teaches that we have been chosen to this end, that we, that should be, may lead a holy and blameless life. And 
An objection is it makes all admonitions meaningless. Calvin says, let preaching then take its course that it may lead men to faith. I remember in a seminar at Princeton, we were studying the institutes and there was a student there uh, who had graduated from a a Methodist um, seminary and um, had um, understood and uh, embraced the Arminian position on these things. And he was quite astounded at this chapter. He said, these are just the things that I was taught at uh, my seminary. And uh, Calvin has already given his answer to these same objections that uh, I was so familiar with from my teachers uh, at the seminary where I studied. Let's think of uh, the uses of this doctrine, and then we'll come to a critique. What effects follow? We're still in book three. Uh, The way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. So we need to uh, look at the effects, the the proper effects, as well as um, look at what uh, should not be a use of the doctrine of election and reprobation. The misuse, and Calvin warns us against this uh, over and over again. In fact, in 321.1, when he's just starting uh, to set out this doctrine, he talks about a misuse, and that is curiosity. He says... um, Curiosity will leave no secret uh, to God. If, we, if we're simply curious, if we simply want to know more than, than God has revealed, we're going to find ourselves, and this is one of his favorite images, in a labyrinth, a maze, and we'll never get out of it. We'll just get lost in there. We can state the doctrine and we really must, Calvin says. Uh, he, he faulted um, others, including his friend Philip Melanchthon, for saying, oh, this is really too complex and too controversial. It's better not to talk about it much. Calvin says, if Scripture talks about it, then we have to talk about it. So we can state it. But um, we can't explain it. We can't go beyond Scripture. We can only state what... We know, and uh, that's what uh, we've looked at up until this point. I like the way the old Southern Presbyterian theologian James Benjamin Green put it, J.B. Green, taught at the old Columbia Seminary. It was in Columbia, South Carolina, then moved to Decatur, Georgia, and taught there as well. But uh, James Benjamin Green put it this way, People want to know why. God chose some and passed by others. Don't ask me, he said. Don't ask John Calvin. Don't ask any man, but ask God. And his answer is Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. 
God chose Son to holiness and sonship because it pleased Him to do so. Why it pleased Him to do so, it has not pleased Him to reveal. <laughs> so, if you're not, if you're not uh, satisfied with some mystery here, uh, you're going to be in serious trouble because uh, Calvin really doesn't um, point a way out of the mystery. Calvin says, this is 3.23.2, When therefore one asks why God has so done, we must reply because he has willed it. But if you proceed further to ask why he so willed, you are seeking something greater and higher than God's will, which cannot be found. So I think Calvin's comment there is very much in line with J.B. Green's um, explanation. So it's not going to be possible for us to have uh, all our questions answered. But uh, what are the what are the proper uses? And uh, there are three. Calvin talks about the the very sweet fruit of this doctrine. And this is where we should really put our emphasis. He says over and over again that this doctrine uh, gives glory to God and humbles people. 3.23.13 Let preaching then take its course that it may lead men to faith and hold them fast in perseverance with continuing profit. And yet, let not the knowledge of predestination be hindered. In other words, let's preach. Let's preach the gospel. Let's preach justification by faith. Let's preach all that the Bible says, but part of what the Bible teaches is predestination. Let not the knowledge of predestination be hindered in order that those who obey may not be proud as of something of their own, but may glory in the Lord. Salt's God, salvation's all of God, it's not of us. And it humbles us because it's not of us, not of works, lest anyone should boast. John Leith taught at the Union Seminary in Richmond for many years put it this way. He said, predestination undercuts all confidence in work righteousness and lays bare the source of human salvation. It is the negation of all merit and places salvation solely in the mercy of God. It means that salvation is rescue and not achievement. Like that uh, last sentence, because Roman Catholic theology that uh, Calvin was uh, writing against uh, viewed salvation as achievement. It wasn't just human achievement because God's grace was necessary, but um, people had to do their part, and so salvation is achievement. But Calvin uh, would agree with what Leith says, I'm sure, that salvation is rescue and not achievement. 
Now here's another quotation from Lee. Predestination was Calvin's most emphatic way of saying that justification is the work of God's grace. Just as justification by grace through faith was Luther's most emphatic way of saying the same thing. Now Luther teaches a doctrine of election very much like Calvin's. And they both teach a doctrine of election very much like Augustine's. But um, I think Lee's point is well taken. There is a kind of um, emphasis on this doctrine in Calvin. And what that is saying is salvation is not by works. It's by God's grace. And when you come to Luther, Luther did not write anything like the Institutes. So we don't have a comparable body of material from Luther, but in looking at Luther's writings, what Luther says over and over again is justification is by faith alone. And Calvin teaches that too. But uh, both those doctrines lead to the same place, and that is salvation is the work of God's grace. The the position of um, this doctrine in the Institutes is unusual. I've already said that. But uh, Calvin's, Calvin's teaching on election is not. Calvin is not breaking new ground here. This is not original. You can find it in Augustine. You can find it in a, a stream, a minority, but... Nonetheless, a stream of Augustinians all the way down uh, to uh, the Reformation. And then you find it in Luther and uh, the other Reformers, even in Melanchthon. Melanchthon taught it just as Calvin did, but um, Melanchthon did not think it should be preached or talked about too much. But um, in his own theology, uh, Melanchthon held it too. But I think what is, what is perhaps original or uh, different is the use that Calvin makes of the doctrine. And uh, that brings us to the second point. This doctrine of God's election encourages confidence. That's something I haven't seen elsewhere in the history of the doctrine of election. Election encourages confidence. If we go back to the, the context in which Calvin was working, the big question was, um, how uh, can I know that I'm saved? Because that's been a big question all along. It still is. But um, the Roman Catholic answer to that question was, you do what is, is within you. You do uh, what uh, you can, and um, with God's uh, help and God's assistance and, and God's grace, uh, you do the best you can. And um, when the person would ask, well, what is that? The answer would be you, um, you follow the sacramental uh, order of the church. You participate in uh, the sacraments, seven of those. And if, like Luther, you would say, but how can I know uh, when I have uh, done enough? How can I know that I have really 
measured up to what is required. After all, one of the sacraments is um, confession. And the first step of confession is contrition. And contrition means to be absolutely sorry for and repentant of your sins. And Luther got stuck right there because he said, I don't know if I'm absolutely, totally, 100% sorry and contrite. How do I know that? How can I judge that? So the Catholic answer was, do the best that is within you. And that left some questions. But, of course, there was another part of the Catholic answer, and that is there's purgatory that will, that will wipe away, that will take care of um, what uh, you have failed to do in this life. So how, how can I know that I'm saved? Catholic answer was do what you can, and you probably are not going to make it to heaven directly because that uh, requires perfection uh, but at least there's purgatory and after a long time in purgatory you will eventually make it to heaven there was another answer in the 16th century to this and that came from the radical uh, wing of the reformation how do I know that I'm saved Uh, because of the good works that I do because of the kind of life that I live and um, that's not um, Calvin's answer either. Uh, that smacks too much of uh, Pelagianism to Calvin, although he will admit that good works are a kind of secondary um, step in assurance, as we already uh, noted when we studied uh, Calvin and, and faith. But uh, Calvin locates assurance uh, in the, the promises of God and specifically Uh, in the doctrine of election. This is the way he starts his whole discussion in 321.1. We shall never be clearly persuaded, as we ought to be, that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election. So Calvin connects assurance, confidence uh, with the doctrine of of election. 324.9, predestination rightly understood brings no shaking of faith, but rather its best confirmation. Now, he says we have to understand it rightly. 324.5, but if we have been chosen in him, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves that is, in our own good works. So he would uh, reject the Anabaptist or radical position. These good works are not worthless as uh, aids to our assurance, but we derive confirmation from works, but we must not begin at them. We begin with God's grace in Christ, and with the fact that God has done everything for us. So we have a stable, not an unstable basis for confidence. You see, if it is either the Roman Catholic view or the Anabaptist view, which says, depends on 
certain extent on what you do, then there's no real confidence there because there could not really be confidence that we have, have done enough. So for Calvin, we can't look at our works and not even, Calvin says, can we look uh, to God the Father if we conceive him as severed from his Son. Uh, that's 324.5. We're looking for assurance. We're looking for confidence. We're not going to find it in ourselves. We're not going to find it if we seek somehow to go directly to God, to have some sort of direct access to the list of the elect. We, we can't do that. We don't have that. We will not find it in God the Father if we conceive him as severed from his Son. We cannot seek our election directly in the mystery of God. We do not have independent access to the decrees of God. But here we come to the, to the point that I'm leading up to. Christ, then, is the mirror where we must and without self-deception may contemplate our own election. Christ is the mirror. Calvin loves that um, image and uh, he uses it uh, a number of times in the institutes as well as uh, frequently uh, in his sermons. Or he will express it this way as he does in 324.7. That sure establishment of election which I bid believers seek from the word of the gospel. Let me illustrate it with this drawing. And the Christian looks at election. Uh, the only way that we have, the only entry that we have uh, into that teaching is through Christ, through our faith in Christ. And it's through Christ that we see our election. So this is the promise. This is the gospel. Uh, this is our way into Christ. And it is through Christ and Christ alone, uh, who is the mirror uh, of our election, that we may, Calvin says, without self-deception, contemplate our own election. Faith is the only way into the doctrine, and all it sees is Christ. So that's the approach that uh, we take to this doctrine. Pigius was a uh, person that uh, Calvin wrote against in his book um, on the eternal predestination of God. And Calvin says, if Pigius asked me how I know I'm elect, I answer that Christ is more than a thousand testimonies to me. So we're not going to find it confidence in our works, our sanctification. Uh, we're not going to find it in some kind of um, direct access to the decrees of God severed from Christ, but we will find our confidence in Christ in the promises of 
the Bible in the Gospel. Encourage his confidence. First, exalts God, humbles man, encourages confidence, and thirdly, creates worship and uh, creates uh, reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the confidence that is uh, created, right. yeah. um, it seems like Calvin points to the objective doctrine mm-hmm. as the ground of the confidence, but it seems to me that the question is not so much whether or not the objective doctrine is true, but whether or not that subjectively I play hold that doctrine. Yes, and uh, that uh, you... you You've uh, put your finger, I think, on a problem uh, here uh, because Calvin, both here in this section and earlier in his treatment of faith, introduces the topic of temporary faith. And uh, that raises some questions because um, when Calvin introduces the idea of temporary faith, um, even in his uh, discussion of, of reprobation, Um, you would think, perhaps this is a valid criticism of Calvin, that the the use of the doctrine of election to instill confidence um, would fail. How can a worried believer know whether what he or she experiences is a sure establishment, Calvin's word for true faith, or merely uh, signs that are similar to true faith? So the the question would be, is my faith true faith? You see, with faith, I look at the promises of the gospel, that is, that God is merciful to me in Christ, and I can read my election there. But what if that faith is not true faith, but is temporary faith only? Well, not sure I have an answer to that. I have um, thought about these sections in the Institutes for some time and the warnings in the Bible that things that look like faith might not be faith. And uh, certainly one way to see passages like this uh, would be to read them as uh, warnings that God gives to us uh, that uh, should be and can be used as a means of our perseverance. In other words, as I read about temporary faith, as I think about the fact that people can be hypocrites, then I'm forced to examine my faith, and uh, that is a means that God uses in perseverance uh, of the saints. Uh, Certainly, uh, this has been been a problem uh, in some expressions of Reformed history. Uh, where people have uh, struggled with the idea of election. How do I know that I'm elect? And there have been some sad stories of people that um, have come to grief on that uh, rock. I was... uh, thinking about uh, this in a a practical way uh, a few days ago. Let me just ask you this question which I ask myself. Calvin says that 
the way into the teaching is the promises of God in Christ. I have accepted those. I have believed those. I have responded to those. And uh, consequently, Christ is the mirror of election for me. But is my faith temporary? Is it real? And uh, the question is, you know, theoretically, that is a question that could be asked, but do we really ask that? I, at this moment, have no, no doubt that my faith is real rather than temporary. Is that something you worry about, or do you wonder, am I really believing, or am I a hypocrite? No. Yes. ideas there. I think that, that is very helpful. Yes. Stephen? I'm wondering about the, even the fact that, that you raised the question to yourself as far as perhaps occasional self-evaluation in accordance with what the scripture uh, calls us to do. Would someone who has temporary faith actually engage in that process of a self-evaluation? Mm-hmm. Or would they sort of just go ahead and say, Sure. Yes. No, I think Calvin certainly sees sees a difference of quality between true faith and, and temporary faith. He says um, a, a person deceives himself. So there is a kind of a process by which uh, self-deception comes in, and a person uh, can begin to think that he has real faith when. He has deceived himself. So there is something perhaps more stable, certainly more stable, more enduring in true faith because it's going to last, whereas temporary faith will eventually fall and falter and prove to be um, not real faith. But I don't know, you know, in the process, can can a person be so self 
to see that that person would think I really have true faith and be testing that faith as a true believer would. Calvin seems to um, resolve that only by saying temporary faith is temporary and it will fail and true faith will not. Yes, question. Is that temporary faith always true you have to be shown in this life? Or can you take that and not find out that it was necessarily temporary faith until the hereafter? Well, that's an interesting thought. I'm not sure that Calvin addresses that. He seems to say that it will fail in this life. But um, could a person have that temporary faith and die with that unfounded, unreal faith? Not sure. Julia? I think the term temporary faith is inappropriate. It might be temporary feelings or emotions. But hear my voice and I know that they probably so do we hear God's voice mm-hmm. and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and therein lies our assurance yes well just some this up. I'm not sure we can answer it, but uh, it's been a, a good discussion to, to think about uh, these things. Um, I think it's not Calvin so much as me at this point. I think temporary faith, that whole idea of um, temporary faith, um, we should we should recognize the warnings in Scripture. We should be aware. Uh, that uh, something like this can exist, and we should examine ourselves uh, carefully. But I don't see it as something that shakes the foundations of a of a true believer. You know, I'm I'm humble, and I feel that I need to be vigilant and to be cautious and to pray and trust. But I don't feel shaken and destroyed by that idea. I mean, my confidence in God is just as strong as it is before I ask that question and when I ask that question. But it is a question to, to be asked, and uh, God then enables us to uh, persevere uh, through means uh, like that. Proper uses exalts God, humbles man, encourages confidence. We've raised a little question there, but I think um, we can still agree with Calvin that uh, we can find confidence in this doctrine because Christ is the mirror of our election and creates worship and reverence. Calvin likes to um, quote uh, Augustine really quoting Paul, O depth, thou seekest reason, I tremble at the depth, reason thou, I will marvel, 
dispute thou, I will believe. I see the depth. I do not reach the bottom. Paul rested, for he found wonder. So the resting place is not understanding, but wonder. Paul rested, for he found wonder. I see the depth. We certainly have seen it, the the depth of this teaching, but we don't reach the bottom. And you know, there's another um, proper use, I think, that can be added to this. I have just um, come across this. I was reading uh, Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. If you want to get uh, Calvin the preacher uh, on the same topic, read the first three sermons on Ephesians 1. And you'll see how Calvin preaches election. And this is the last sentence of Calvin's sermon on Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, the third of his um, sermons on Ephesians. He ends it this way. And being quite abased in ourselves, let us seek that we may be so renewed in the image of God that it may shine perfectly in us till we are made partakers of the glorious immortality which he has so dearly bought for us. In other words, we think of this doctrine, uh, we humble ourselves, and uh, we, seek, um, we seek the goal that God has in mind, and that is our holiness and our righteousness, that we may be made partakers of the glorious immortality which he has so dearly bought for us. Also, that it may please him to grant this grace not only to us, but also to all peoples and all nations. That's a kind of an amazing closing sentence there because Calvin says we use the doctrine of election to humble ourselves, uh, to uh, move forward in our sanctification, and to pray uh, for the salvation of the whole world. And to elsewhere, he would say, to work for the salvation of the whole world. So, the doctrine of election, even though many people would see it very much opposed to this use, uh, Calvin says, uh, should lead us to prayer for the lost and evangelism for the lost. Also, that it may please him to grant this grace not only to us, but also to all peoples and nations. Well, time is almost up, and I still haven't finished this teaching. (laughs) But uh, we'll see what we'll do about that next time. Let me just kind of summarize it this way. When we look at... uh, God's will, as he has revealed that to us in the scripture, uh, we, see, we see two things. We see teaching about um, his election, God's election, and his uh, reprobation. And we see his teaching of his uh, love uh, for the lost, his willing, uh, his, the fact that he's not willing that, that any should perish. So 
both of those are present uh, in the Bible. Uh, sometimes uh, the first is called God's hidden will, his election and reprobation. Uh, even Calvin will use the idea of hidden will. And his love for the lost is his reveal will. seems to me that that is not a particularly helpful uh, distinction here because God has revealed his will concerning election reprobation too. It's not that we don't know anything about this. The Bible teaches us these things. So we have two parts to God's reveal will uh, that he elects and he reprobates and that he loves um, the lost. Uh, Calvin, I think, approaches it this way. Puts those two together, uh, not in any kind of logically um, coherent way, because he feels the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. But uh, in terms of mystery, uh, we simply accept both. God's election, his reprobation, and uh, his love for the lost. And then as we engage these doctrines, on the side of his election and reprobation, uh, there is uh, humility uh, because we know that his salvation of us rests in his unshakable mercy and grace, and then uh, that produces confidence because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on God and what God has done for us. And on the side of his love for the lost, uh, that produces prayer for the lost and evangelism uh, as we uh, attempt to reach uh, lost people uh, in this world. Okay, time is up, so we'll stop at uh, this point today. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.